0: gentlemen.
1: Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it?
0: Greetings to your listeners. Uh, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast. I am almost completely healed. Um, I feel like a, almost a new man. Um, of course, the The man's status quo ante was not all that impressive. He still had only the upper body strength of a twelve year old girl, Um, but it does feel good to be healthy again. And uh, had a wonderful Thanksgiving with family. I'm glad to be back, and um, in part because I didn't. I felt like I didn't completely scratch the itch of what's going on in Iran stuff uh, with our friend Ken Pollack. um, and in part because I read this great op-ed by Michael Rubin, another colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute, um, about why America is never ready to take advantage um, of a, the potential for a regime change. I thought I'd have Michael on so we could um, we could really uh, uh, go deeper on all of these things. So, Michael Rubin, welcome back to The Remnant. It's been a little while. It has been, Jonah. Thanks for having me. Um, so, why don't you just sort of lay out your... Your argument, and then we'll we'll take it from there. But in, the, in your piece for the Examiner about uh, why America just always seems to be surprised that that these horrible regimes are horrible, and that their own people recognize that they're horrible, and maybe we can do something about it.
1: Well, basically, my argument is that the State Department is afflicted by a terminal case of inertia that foggy bottom has purged every creative bone any of its diplomats would have, and they're much more comfortable managing the day-to-day rather than seeing the big picture. So to mix a lot of metaphors, they never see the forest through the trees. Now, we've seen this 30 years ago when the State Department was completely averse to anything that might lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union. After all, they had... Um, put in a lot of time and energy making treaties and arms agreements with the Soviet Union. And this led in 1991 to the famous Chicken Kiev speech in which George H.W. Bush got up before the Ukrainian parliament as the Soviet Union was falling apart. And he chastised them not to fall apart, that sometimes <laughs> nationalism could be a bad thing. And that just, it just it's, it's like a fish dinner. It doesn't get better with age. Um, and we're seeing the same thing now with Iran and with China. When I talk to senior Iranian oppositionists, I'm not talking about the 40 guys with the newspaper. I'm talking about guys with legitimacy, guys uh, who have been at the front line of opposition, front line of human rights advocacy. What they say to a man is that they haven't had a single executive branch meeting, not in months but in years, if not decades, that the State Department only wants to engage with the Islamic Republic of Iran, period. And we're seeing the same thing now with China. And you'd think that after Tiananmen Square back in 1989, we wouldn't get caught with our pants down again, completely unprepared. And yet we're seeing the biggest protests since President Xi came, uh, since Tiananmen Square, Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about how President Xi could be the dictator for life, the new Mao Zedong, and now we don't even know whether he's going to live out the week. So the point is, how come the State Department is never able to sort of set its sights on what comes next, if only to remind people that, hey, you know, there is going to be a next The Islamic Republic isn't the pinnacle of Iranian political evolution, and the Communist Party of China isn't the pinnacle of thousands of years of Chinese civilization. We should always be geared to what's next, and not to rant too long, Jonah. It may be before we became colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, but about— Fifteen years ago, um, the American Enterprise Institute and our former colleague, Radek uh, Sikorsky, who subsequently became both defense minister and foreign minister of Poland, had sponsored a conference in Gdansk uh, to mark the 25th anniversary of the Solidarity Movement, Lech Walesa's movement from which many people trace uh, the end of the Cold War. And we brought together a bunch of dissidents, not only from Eastern Europe, but also from places that hadn't had their revolutions yet, from Iran, from Cuba, from North Korea, uh, from Zimbabwe and other places in Africa. And what Lech and his East European comrades were discussing is how when change came, it was even though they had struggled for decades, it was much faster than any of them expected. The final weeks, I mean, it, it happened in a flash and none of them were prepared And all of them fell flat. And so what this conference was about was how not to fall flat, how not to fall on your face when suddenly you have power handed to you. What are we doing to ensure that the next generation of Iranians or Chinese or North Koreans aren't going to fall flat on their face so that we're going to have to deal with this whole problem again uh, with reactionary uh, sort of anti-liberalism if the liberals fall flat?
0: Okay, so I want to – what my colleague Sarah Isger likes to call steel man some of this, where I actually try to make a position I don't – take a position I don't hold
1: to push back on some of it. But before I do that, I just uh, sort of – Devil's advocate become too politically incorrect. Are we not allowed <laughs> to use that term? Okay. I guess so, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: uh, just to flesh this out a little bit, how much of this do you think is um, a – Intelligence failure in the sense of not really understanding these countries that we're paying that that we're supposed to be paying attention to, and how much of it is? I mean, I'm sure there's a better way to to explain this than public choice theory. But if you think of State Department officials, if you think of diplomats as a little bit sort of like journalists, right? Their portfolio, their their added value, their comparative advantage is their sources. And it's sort of like when a journalist when when a Republican administration comes in. There are certain reporters who are great at covering Democrats because they have all these sources for Democrats, all of a sudden just don't know anybody, don't know, can't get people on the phone, um, and have to sort of switch beats because they're just the wrong person for it. How much of it is is that the State Department is, or policymakers in general, are just too deep, have so many sunk costs in their relationships with the people in power that imagining a world where they're that those people are no longer in power is also a way of imagining yourself as no longer being in power, if that makes any sense.
1: You're, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a few things to unpack there. First of all, I'm going outside my comfort zone, but I've from time to time, I think a little bit about how we could do diplomacy better. And I mean, one of the ironies, and you can talk to any diplomat about this, is they spend all their time interviewing their sources, like you say, and then no one back in Foggy Bottom actually reads the stuff, mm-hmm. uh, unless, of course, there's a crisis, and then they try to get as much of it as possible. I've always thought it would be a lot better to do more and write less, and that instead of simply putting all our people in the capital, what we actually should do is come up with some formula that for every million people a city or a province have, for example, we should put one diplomat there, or perhaps every 10 million people, so that we have diplomats who are in charge of living on their own, taking the taxi or the bus where they need to go, and aren't actually living in the embassy so that they can have their finger on the pulse. There's also an issue of perspective. If we go back to the tank man during the Tiananmen Square protests, the way I've always explained this when I teach is we can spend tens of billions of dollars in terms of intelligence trying to figure out who that man is who's going to stand in front of the tank, or we can spend a lot less money trying to create a situation where someone is going to be willing to step up and stand in front of that tank. Uh, and arguably, too often we try to do the former rather than the later. The other issue, and maybe I could have a back and forth at some point when Ken and I bump into each other in the office, Ken Pollack, <laughs> uh, your former guest, because, of course, he used to work for the um, CIA. But too often, especially when it comes to Iran, we focus on what we do know about Iran. That's what the government wants. They want to know what we know. As a historian, I'm much more interested, 40 some odd years, I say 40 some odd years because I'm a historian and not a mathematician, 40 some odd years after the Islamic Revolution. What is it we still don't know about Iran? And what does that tell us about our analysis and where Iran could go? I can tell you. I mean, for example, we talk about hardliners versus reformers in the Iranian political context. Well, what are the factional divisions within the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps? I mean, we might know theoretically, but we don't know that that lieutenant or that colonel is from this faction or that faction. We know it's not homogenous. Then again, in 2007, the Iranians calculated, you know, Saddam Hussein is gone. Um, The Taliban are no longer a problem. The Israelis are a paper tiger, and I'm actually quoting the Revolutionary Guard right now. The Americans can't do a damn thing. Therefore, what the Revolutionary Guard decided is that the biggest threats to Iran's stability would actually come from inside Iran rather than outside. And remember, while the Iranian army is in charge of territorial defense, the Revolutionary Guard is in charge of defense of the revolution, which means the threats can come from either externally or internally. What the Revolutionary Guard did was take one unit and put it in each province with the goal of trying to keep control over that province. Here's something else we don't know. Are the people within each of those provincial units native to the provinces in which they serve? Mm -hmm. If they are, that signals that ideology trumps kinship if given the order to fire in the crowds in the street. If they're not, That suggests that even the Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, he can claim to be the deputy of the Messiah on Earth, but he can't trust his own people. And so this, of course, is, to me, the big issue which we need to resolve if we're going to understand where Iran might go in the future. And then you have the traditional issues about what is the opposition. And this is my problem, of course, with the Iranian protests right now. The Iranian protests have succeeded in delegitimizing the regime. But a couple months on, I don't see a leadership to this opposition. Therefore, I'm not sure whether they can channel the anger into something more.
0: What is your, um, so there's this debate, there's a New York Times piece yesterday about this. Um, it's divided many of my friends about what the United States should say about the protests in China. We've been a little more forceful about what we've said about the protests in Iran, um, do you think we should have different rhetorical approaches to the two different protests? What, you know, what should our, our, our standard response be to, um, regimes that are at minimum, uh, competitors if, and, and more likely enemies, um, when they see protests in the street, should we take the side of the protesters regardless of whether or not they, we think they can
1: succeed. You don't want to overpromise Jonah, but Where I think the United States goes wrong, and we've had these debates in policy circles, for example, uh, back in 2009, when the post-election unrest in Iran also led to nationwide protests, Obama uh, remained largely silent. People on the streets of Iran chanted, Obama, Obama, you're either with us or against us, which actually rhymes in Persian. It doesn't so much in English. (laughs) At any rate, what I would argue is that you don't want to overpromise where you encourage people to stick their neck out only to get chopped off. Right. But instead, what you want to do is sell the American story. You want to talk on principle. The White House did was very good in talking about how we support peaceful protests. Well, we support a lot more than peaceful protests. We support the freedom. We support liberty. We support democracy. And we shouldn't be embarrassed to say that. What you don't want to say is that if you go out into the streets, we're going to support you with arms and ammunition because that would delegitimize the protesters and that would um, basically set them, set them up for failure. But Why should we be so afraid of what our brand is? And this seems to be something that has gotten worse over the last 10 years as Americans have become excellent at self-flagellation, as we believe that somehow that we are the most evil country in the world, which is only an indication that no one has actually traveled outside the borders of the United States who makes (laughs) that argument. Because I'll tell you, when I've been with the Taliban, when I've been in Iraq, Iran, Somalia, and so forth, China, I mean... We may not be perfect, but compared to them, we're the shining city on the hill. Um, no, so this is where I come down. You know, my my, my
0: um, former intense foreign policy neoconservatism is tempered over the years, but this is a place where I remain um, true to all that stuff, which is that you always you should never be embarrassed about what you believe, and it seems to me that particularly going at this this point that you made earlier about how we don't, there's so much we don't know about what's going on on the ground. The only recourse in some ways is to say, is to have a little sort of epistemological humility about where things are going, but at the same time say, hey, look, we're on the side of freedom. We're on the side of democracy. That doesn't mean we're going to like drop weapons into downtown Beijing or anything like that, but provide rhetorical support For certain ideas to make it clear where we stand. And because part of my my gripe about these things is this is this tendency, getting back to that public choice theory point, of just simply assuming that the status quo powers right now are going to be the status quo powers off into an infinite future. And there's a certain moral corruption, ideological corruption, philosophical corruption that comes. From that, it's it's what Orwell would call a kind of power worship. These straight line predictions into the future, and the odds of you being caught in a situation where you temporized um, or you equivocated about core fundamental principles down the road is gonna could could bite us in the ass. And um, I'd rather just sort of forthrightly state our principles and say, "I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do right now to help you." but we're rooting for you, or say that even implicitly. But there's just a lot of people who think that, that somehow that is an act of aggression against another country.
1: I, I largely agree with you, and my own neoconservatism has been tempered somewhat. Certainly, I was never a very good neocon because I never believed in bombing Iran. Mm-hmm. But let me, given, let's bring the Arab Spring into this for a moment, and um, I, I can explain a little bit where I'm going on this. During the Arab Spring, President Obama too often sat on the fence. And we saw this also with the coup, or as President Sisi in Egypt likes to call it, the revolution that overthrew Mohamed Morsi. The way I would analogize this is to sit on the sidelines is like you're at uh, playing blackjack, but you only want to put your bet on the table once you see what all the cards are. Mm -hmm. The world just doesn't work that way. And if you play that sort of game where you try to sit on the fence, then what you're going to end up doing is breeding conspiracy where the people who are your natural ideological allies think you betrayed them because you didn't support them, even rhetorically or morally. And those in the government who are repressing them know that you never actually came to the government support, and you end up in the worst of both ways. I would much rather choose a side Mm -hmm. and be wrong than to actually try to sit on the fence. That's number one. With regard to China, I got to admit, I don't know fully what to do right now. That said, when it comes to Iran, we have a whole host range of options, which we could engage in, which we could sample from, which I don't think we're created enough to do. As you know, for I never served in the military, but for a decade, I actually taught for the U.S. Navy. So over the course of that decade, I actually spent more than a year deployed at sea with the U.S. Navy. And one of the things I got, I mean, it was in a graduate school seminar on how the Navy works, if not more. And one of the things I had never fully understood was just the importance of U.S. Navy hospital ships, like the U.S. NS Comfort. Well, why is it that instead of having the straw man argument about doing nothing with Iran or bombing Iran? Why don't we send one of our hospital ships to Dubai, where you have flights every hour from Iran, and actually tell the Iranian protesters and tell the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, if you need, we'll give you free medical care. If the Revolutionary Guard takes it, think of the intelligence coup that would be. And if they don't take it, well, think of the dissension that will cause because at least when I used to live in Iran, and as you know, they used to call me in Persian, "Pasari which means son of the great Satan. Um, the one thing that was apparent inside Iran, one of the fissures in society, is that the Iranians are horrible at veteran services. I mean, there's no moral equivalence to the problems we have with the VA here. The Iranians have completely dropped the ball. And so you have a lot of military veterans who would love free medical care. Either they take it, which is great for us. Or they don't take it, which just causes a dissension and you're never going to have effective change in Iran unless you actually have a fracturing of the Revolutionary Guard. That's what I want our fo- the focus on our policy to be. And so this is one way to both do the right thing and advance that advance that situation where you can have the guy standing in front of the tank, where you can have the Revolutionary Guard fracture. So I do think that there's a lot we can do there. And then, of course, when it comes to the Iranians, if we can give the protesters free medical care, what better way to tell the Iranians, we're with you, we're not anti-Iranian. We're just anti-regime. And so I do think there's a lot we can do nonviolently and creatively. And we need to start thinking about that in terms of China. But again, I don't think the State Department is a particularly creative institution. And unfortunately, unlike the 1980s, and our colleague Danielle Plekka can testify to this, the Congress too often has given up its oversight responsibilities uh, just for the sake of having a smooth ride or for their internecine battles um, as we forget the fact that we can be cooperative and have a stronger foreign policy and instead just want to get distracted by endless political battles at home.
0: What do you think explains why Iran kind of falls in this weird uh, neutral zone in the American political discourse where um, it feels like a lot on the right really don't want to buy into it again in a way that um, probably has a little bit to do with, you know, the vestigial Trumpism of our foreign poli- Trumpification of our foreign policy. But there are a lot of people on the left. I mean, like, the, the stuff we were talking about earlier about the State Department buying into, protecting its investments, as it were, in... Um, um, in the Iranian regime is one thing, but in the broader sort of intellectual cultural climate, it just feels like nobody wants to grapple too deeply with the challenge that Iran poses and the potential, you know, and the potential of, of regime change there being a solution to this now endless thing about their nuclear program. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that they would get rid of their nuclear program. I'd be curious to know what you would think if we, if the regime were toppled, what would happen to the nuclear program? But I have to think that if Democrat, if a democratic uprising in Iran uh, toppled the regime, their nuclear program would become less of a concern um, than it is right now. It may not. Maybe there'd be a ultra nationalist faction that would take over. But it just seems like nobody wants to engage in the conversation, and there's a there's a way in which, like the 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 cultural valence of women throwing off their, you know their 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 scarves and all that. Um, you would think that that would plug right into the moral imagination of big swaths of the left, and it just doesn't feel like it does um, for some reason. Or maybe I'm misreading the, the situation. What,
1: what do you think about all that? I I think you're on to something right there, and it's something that's very curious about this love or this willingness to give a get-out-of-jail-free card to the Islamic Republic of Iran. The same thing could be said for the Palestinians, uh, especially in the Gaza Strip with Hamas, for example. I mean, when you have a homophobic, misogynistic, uh, anti-freedom of religion sort of organization, it's not normal, and uh, kleptocracy, it's not normally the sort of thing which you'd expect progressives to embrace. Then again, of course, um, as a 14-year veteran of Quaker schools, that I love pointing out to the Quakers, which they hate when I point out to them, <laughs> is that they actively supported Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, if you go back to what the American Friends Service Committees did and said at the time. Um, there's this sense where, I mean, I think it comes down to navel-gazing, where we assume that, A, everything is our fault and our adversaries don't have agency. To Mm -hmm. me, that's a bit racist. I mean, they Mm -hmm. very much do have agency. And we assume, therefore, that whatever um, negative sort of um, aspects of their society can actually be explained or blamed on us. Now, um, when it comes to the future of Iran, you know I'm married to a Russian refugee, a Soviet refugee, and there's an old Russian joke about the difference between a Russian optimist and a Russian pessimist. A Russian pessimist is the one who says, you know, Jonah, things have never been so bad. War, pestilence, poor economy, uh, the price of food, whatever you have, they couldn't possibly get worse, And the Russian optimist is the one who says, no, 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 they can always get worse. (laughs) And so when it comes to Iran, I like to say that, um, uh, unfortunately, I'm a bit of an optimist. Now, if I'm a true American optimist, what I would point out is that democracy isn't a foreign implant in Iran like it would be in arguably, uh, in the Arab world during the Arab spring. So for example, in 1905, between 1905 to 1911, they had something in Iran called the Mashrutiya or the constitutional revolution, which was modeled after the first Russian revolution where the Tsar lost his absolute power and you had the Duma or basically a parliament in St. Petersburg. You had the same sort of thing in Iran. And it actually lasted for about a decade before forces of chaos and counter-revolution of course, swept it away, and the rest is history. But in the Iranian mind, they do see this as sort of an indigenous Iranian um, concept rather than a foreign implant, and that's positive. Where I think we really need to worry about the future in Iran is this. Between 1980 and 1988, you had the Iran-Iraq War, and it was like World War I on steroids trench warfare, mustard gas, uh, barbed wire, but then you also had the Scud missiles going back and forth. That's when the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps became so powerful. In 1988, Ayatollah Khomeini, the revolutionary leader, got on the radio and he said, it's like drinking from a chalice of poison, but I have no choice but to drink from this cup if I want the revolution to survive, and he agreed to a ceasefire. Well, The Revolutionary Guard didn't want to lose their privileges. They didn't want to go back in the barracks. So without moral equivalence, they took their equivalent of the Army Corps of Engineers and they decided to invest in the civilian economy. Again, without moral equivalence, if you want to understand today what the economic wing of the Revolutionary Guard is like, imagine taking the Army Corps of Engineers, merging it with KBR, Bechtel, and Halliburton, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, Exxon Mobil, Walmart, and throw in a few other places like that. They control 40% of the economy. So what I'm actually concerned about is even if we do simply give the the moral sort, sort of support for the liberals to the people who have been inoculated from Islamic radicalism, we're still going to have to deal with the Revolutionary Guard, which goes back to our intelligence hole from before, about what they actually believe, because whether they're just in it for the money or whether they're true ideologues. And remember, you can go into the Revolutionary Guard bubble when you're age 8 because they run after-school programs. You can think of them like evil Boy Scouts. And you can stay in that bubble. They run schools, they run universities. And so when we hear the ranting and raving of Iranian figures, we may believe that, you know, no one could possibly believe that. That's just for rhetoric only. But if that's what you've grown up in, if that's your environment, you may believe it. And we have the same problem with the CCP in China. And to a much greater extent... You have that huge problem. The real policy pickle is going to be what happens when North Korea goes. My first trip to South Korea, what I was shocked by was how few in South Korea wanted reunification because they believed that North Korea was too far gone. This isn't North Yemen and South Yemen, it's not East Germany and West Germany. This is exponentially more difficult. How do you actually unwind the indoctrination? which has occurred in places like Iran, China, and North Korea. And this is, again, a place where our State Department is failing because we're too embarrassed by our own beliefs that we're not willing to engage in the anti-incitement which is necessary to repair generations of hatred.
0: On the, it's, an, it's a very good point about the, the Revolutionary Guard. Um, at the same time, I mean, so... I understand you're saying that you're a Russian optimist in the sense that you think what comes after the the Ayatollahs could be worse than what we've got now. Um,
1: but I don't want the Ayatollahs to to stay. Right. I'll, so, I'll make that clear. And actually, if I can tell one other Iranian joke, Jonah, before you go sure. on. Sure. I mean, the Iranians tell a joke because, like, like I said, I used to live there, about – how an Iranian woman is getting married. And on her wedding night, she tells her husband, I probably should have told you this before, but this is my second marriage. And the husband goes, what? And she said, no, 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 don't worry. I'm still a virgin. Well, how can that be, her husband said. And she said, well, my first husband was like Hassan Rouhani, the the recent president of Iran. He kept promising to do it, promising to do it, promising to do it. And after eight years, he didn't touch a thing. There's a huge sense of apathy inside Iran. They don't want the Ayatollahs, but what we have to understand about the Iranian mindset is last time when Ayatollah Khomeini promised them an Islamic democracy, what they got was neither, but they had a war that killed a million people. And so when we approach Iran, it's important to recognize that they believe that things could get much worse. But that doesn't mean that they want the status quo. We constantly have sparks, and the issue right now is whether the opposition is better at fanning the flames than the government is at smothering them. Um,
0: on that Islamic democracy point, just really quickly, it, it seems to me you don't have to go back to the Kerensky government of 1905 model. I don't look. I, I don't think Iran is a democracy, but they do go through the motions of a democracy, right? Because the the president. The us pick a slate of candidates that are pre-approved, so you're never going to get anything really challenging the regime. But then they actually have, uh, my understanding was that the the elections, again, the whole thing is rigged in the sense that the only candidates are already acceptable to the regime. But beyond that, the actual elections are actually competitive elections,
1: and they're free and fair. Am I wrong about that? You're a little bit wrong about that, but I think what you're right on is they have the mechanism there. It's not always clear that um, the elections aren't rigged and it's not just selection of candidates. Because, for example, when they let Western journalists in, they usually hang out in the north of Tehran, which is like opining from the Upper West Side of Manhattan about what's going on in rural Nebraska. It just doesn't work. But if you actually go to rural Nebraska, you see, for example, that only 5% of the population is participating in the election sort of thing. That said, where you're absolutely right is having that practice. Right. I I was getting at the muscle memory. There's a habit there that we could build on. Yeah, that's the word. The the muscle memory is there, and and you're absolutely right. And the important thing about Iran, and the Iraqis are now discovering this as well. Again, I'm a historian. I don't do math, but um, what is it, 13 years after more than that, it's— 19 years after the Iraq war, uh, more than 45% of the Iraqi population has been born after that. They're no longer willing to accept um, some of the excuses of the religious parties and so forth. They've been inoculated against the radicalism. They're not willing to say, but Islam is an excuse against all the corruption and all this and that, or but um, Kurdishness or anything like that. The Iranians are in the same way. They're not going to be easily fooled again. Um, Ayatollah, I mean, and when I talk to Iranians, they actively will talk about this. They are ready for a constitutional monarchy. Uh, Sorry, a constitutional um, parliamentary democracy, a, a constitutional republic. The question is, Who is going to interfere with them? And this, again, is another problem we have in U.S. policy. We have become so entrenched in this notion that we need an even playing field. Therefore, we shouldn't help anyone. But we forget that we're not the only guys in the sandbox. And everyone surrounding Iran or everyone surrounding China or or whatever the problem set of the day is, is actively going to choose sides. And if we are the ones where we want the liberals to win, but we want an even playing field so we're not going to help them, Then what actually happens is the liberals and the ones who have an outcome most favorable to the way we and I would argue the majority of Iranians would like to see things actively are at a disadvantage because they're the only ones not getting support. Switching gears just a
0: a little bit. um, I know China is not your main thing, although you know more about it than a lot of people, including me. Um, But I I like to ask people this because it gets at this larger theme of what we're talking about here. I get, and this is a recurring thing on this podcast. I totally get that the bet we made in the 1990s about China—that bring them into the global trading order, bring them into the 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 the, the rules based system, um, uh, help them fight poverty, which was hugely successful um, by with market based initiatives and whatnot—that that will over time. Yield liberalization, right? This is this old argument about first you get a middle class, then you get, you know, um, sort of bourgeois democracy and liberalization. I get the argument and I agree with it that that has failed, but I always add a so far at the end of that sentence um, because even if a, even a year ago, if you had predicted, well, look, I don't, look, I don't know what's going to happen next in China, but. I think it's entirely possible we are going to have massive anti-COVID protests all over the country. You're going to have people in the streets screaming down with Xi. Um, People would look at you like you're crazy because, you know, obviously they're in trans, forget a year ago, after uh, 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 Xi humiliated Hu Jintao at the party conference, what, a month ago, if you had made a prediction about this current moment, people would call you crazy. And, um, it seems to me like, look, I don't think we're about to see the toppling of, of G I I wish it were otherwise, but it seems obvious to me that the way the regime reacts to things like this is that it proves that the regime is as scared of, it's almost as scared of its own people as the people are of the regime. And, um, and that, this is uh, whatever we think about the fragility of the Chinese regime. The Chinese regime thinks it's pretty fragile because you don't do stuff like the social credit score stuff and the domestic spying and the surveillance and, and, and all the rest if you think that you have an intact anti-fragile regime that can endure. This is a regime that feels it has to be constantly on guard for fear of being you know, toppled from within in some way, which should tell you something about it. Um, anyway, wh- where do you come down on this, you know, the bet failed versus the bet f- failed so far?
1: Well, I think your so far is incredibly important. I remember when I was a grad student, I one of my um, academic advisors was a gentleman named Paul Kennedy, who was famous for his book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. And I remember um, I was too shy and too polite at this point in my life to actually say this, but we were having a seminar in in his very nice Victorian house in his library. And this German girl who was there basically raised her hand and said, Professor Kennedy, this was, we were all sipping sherry. She may have had a little bit too much. (laughs) And she said, what do you have to say for yourself that, I mean, you wrote this rise and fall of the great powers. And this is in the 1990s, of course. So Russia, I mean, Boris Yeltsin was still there. It looked like Russia was on the right track. What, What do you have to say, given that your thesis turned out to be wrong? that, and, and Paul Kennedy gave that. he said, first of all, we wouldn't be sipping this sherry or sitting in this house had that book not become a bestseller. And then he said, and as for my thesis, let me say, so far, you haven't heard the last from Russia. And even though politically I disagree with Paul Kennedy, and by the way, even though we fought like cats and dogs over issues. He was a fantastic teacher who, I mean, the, the way a teacher should be in that he didn't allow politics to um, determine the way he, he didn't try to impose. He wanted free thought. At any rate, he was absolutely right, just as you are so far. Where I think the United States goes wrong is too often we we mirror image, we navel gaze. We think about diplomacy as how to get to yes how to have a win-win situation that's the way we want that's the vision we have for the liberal order what we don't understand is that our adversaries too often look at diplomacy as an asymmetric warfare strategy where they can tie our hands while in michael pillsbury's terms as he was borrowing it from the chinese communist party the chinese engage in a 100-year marathon we have to understand that competitors are just competitors and they don't all want to sing kumbaya with us that Xi, or before him, Xi Jinping, or Mao Zedong, they're not going to ever be our friends, and we shouldn't try to make them our friends. We've always got to have that aspect of caution behind us. But you just actually reminded me, Jonah, and I agree 100% of this with you, but it's something else that's always bothered me about foreign policy in my travel. I've been traveling around because I've been working on another book, um, a sequel to my book on the history of American diplomacy with rogue regimes and terrorist groups. My new book is a uh, History of American Diplomacy with Revisionist States, including China, Russia, Turkey, Venezuela, Cuba, and so forth. One of the things that has always struck me. Why don't you just explain for the average listener what revisionist state means? That's a-, a revisionist state is a state that wants to end the rules-based order that we want, that doesn't agree with the post-World War II liberalism and fundamentally wants to change things. So basically what Xi has been rather open about with regard to China. when And we work with a very narrow tool set. In the United States, Part of that tool set is not touching religion because we have separation of church and state and inside the United States, and therefore we look at religion and policy as a third rail. We cannot afford to do this because just because we don't want to have um, state endorsement of any religion doesn't mean that we can ignore and project onto the outside world. That religion doesn't matter. I Part of my most recent trip, I had started in India and I was up in Ladakh which is the portion of India that borders China. So basically, it's Tibet as Tibet would be if Tibet were free. I mean, filled with Buddhist monasteries and so forth. I'm up at 18,000 feet above sea level, walking along the Chinese border, that sort of issue. One of the things that I hadn't thought about, but was was really key, was that, and it seems completely ironic, the Chinese are trying to co-opt Buddhism now. They destroyed ninety nine point five of the Buddhist monasteries when they took over Tibet and then between nineteen fifty nine and nineteen seventy nine, they completely razed the place. They they eradicated Buddhist artifacts. But now what they're trying to do is say we, the World Association of Buddhists based in China, are representing Buddhists and you, Japan, Taiwan, Burma, Thailand. Sri Lanka, all these other Buddhist states need to rally around us. And the Indians are playing catch-up because, of course, Buddhism started in India. You've got 10, um, more, about 10 million Buddhists in India, even if it's a majority Hindu country. This may all sound, sound kind of crazy. What the hell do we care? But think of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is, I think, 89 years old now. Think of what his legacy has been. The Dalai Lama's legacy, standing up for freedom and liberty, is akin to what John Paul II's legacy was and how he helped bring down communism. Now, the Dalai Lama isn't going to last forever. 89-year-old Dalai Lamas tend not to. And there's going to be a choice of a new Dalai Lama. What the Chinese are doing now by trying to put their thumb on Buddhism and leverage Buddhism is they're trying to decide who the new pick is going to be. And can you imagine how different the world will be if instead of the Dalai Lama being anti-totalitarian, anti-communist party, we have a new Dalai Lama that is pro-communist party. I'm not saying the United States should be the flag bearer of Buddhism either, but we have skin we should have skin in this game to ensure that whatever China tries to do is delegitimized. And whatever India, the world's largest democracy, and frankly, as of today, I also believe the world's largest country, that they are the ones who are going to have the greater influence in order to ensure that freedom of religion and freedom of faith remain that way. Because again, as if China is a revisionist state, if President Xi wants to change the rules-based order, we got to recognize he's not going to self-constrain the way we are, and that we can't again, project our own sort of phobias about touching religion onto the rest of the outside world.
0: First of all, that was really interesting. I did not know about the Dalai Lama machinations at all. Um, so I'm grateful for that. But uh, let me throw something else out there because th- this whole G, um revisionist thing about um, rejecting the Western rule-based order as uh, essentially colonialism and cultural imperialism and all that... I get why China would want to make that argument, um, particularly if you're an authoritarian regime looking to justify authoritarianism. You have to say that the liberal democratic order is just as arbitrary um, as um, uh, as any other order, and in 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 some ways, it's it's even more illegitimate because it doesn't reflect culture. Yada, yada. I get I get the arguments. The problem is, and I I don't mean to get all Um, epistemological here is, but like the the part of the problem is, is that the enlightenment called the enlightenment based scientific revolution based liberal order is actually better at a lot of things than any of the alternatives. And you look at um, this hole that Xi has gotten himself in with COVID where they allowed traditional Chinese medicine to be one of the remedies for it. They had political imperatives about getting vaccines out, so the vaccines suck um, and didn't really work, and um, and because of the and I don't want to traffic in stereotypes about Chinese culture about fears of losing face, but authoritarian dictators everywhere don't like to lose face, right? Don't like to be proven wrong about something, and so the regime is having to double down on a really failed policy that is is turning the place into a tinderbox, and. Um, that is, and then you just think of the larger macroeconomic picture where Xi is hurting his own economy because he'd rather strengthen authoritarianism than strengthen, strengthen the economy. Vladimir Putin does that too. In some ways, isn't uh, part of the, isn't it sort of baked into the cake a little bit that these non-democratic authoritarian, non, in some some respects sort of neo-romantic non-rational approaches to politics are in effect a poison pill for these kinds of regimes over the long haul because i mean look i mean i don't know when north korea is going to fail but that is not a kind of regime that has a, a lot of longevity built into the model right um and isn't this sort of a natural advantage for Western countries?
1: I, I think you're absolutely right, Jonah. But one thing that the United States isn't very good at studying and in, in the broader outside world isn't either is this notion of zombie regimes. And the fact of the matter is, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I'm still waiting for Tom Friedman to write his xenophilic uh, <laughs> column about how great China is right now, given the way he was writing in the night um, for the last 20 years. But I, I may have to wait for that column for a little while. At so. any rate, I, and the, the point is that a lot of states continue on long after they should have failed. The other point I just want to extrapolate from what you said is what Xi is doing is bad for his own economy. What Erdogan is doing in Turkey is bad for his own economy. What the Iranians have been doing, look, the problem with the Iranian economy has never been sanctions; It's been their own economic mismanagement. At least that's what the Iranians will say. But what we've got to do is stop projecting this notion that these regimes are putting the economy first, because oftentimes ideology trumps that sort of Western logic. Um, And so it is a poison pill, We shouldn't do anything to throw these regimes a life preserver, which is why I objected to the basis of both President Obama and President Biden's um, outreach to the Islamic Republic, giving them billions of dollars in order to negotiate. You're throwing a life preserver to a failing regime. And what I would say, the biggest difference to me between Democrats and dictators are dictators wake up every morning wondering whether today is going to be their last day. Where Democrats wake up and know when their last day will be, um, and if we can keep President G uneasy, all the better. And we shouldn't do anything to reinforce the regime. But at the same time, I mean, we should let it collapse under its own weight. And as we were saying at the beginning of our conversation, be creative enough to prepare for the day after. So unlike George H. W. Bush with Chicken Kiev, we're not afraid of the collapse, but we believe we can channel it to the right outcome. So since we're on China and you were recently in kimoy these are these islands. Are not they also called Kimin? During the Eisenhower, Kinmen and Kimoi are the same. It just depends on whether it's okay. uh, which dialect of Chinese it is, and they're right across the strait uh, from Xiamen. Excuse my pronunciation. Um, believe it or not, with a name like Michael Rubin, I'm not Chinese. Okay. Um, but in the old days, it was called Amoy. And just to make this clear, um, and I, because I looked this up, was um, As I was at my bed and breakfast on Kimoy, looking at the skyline of Zeeman, it's less the distance than it would be sitting in Newark, New Jersey, looking at Manhattan. That's how close it is. I have have way too much experience
0: in Newark, New Jersey, not to understand that uh, all too well. So why don't, you know, if you can sort of connect the dots, first of all, what is at stake? Do you think for for the West in in Taiwan, um, and also if you can tie it in, you know what what do you think is at stake in Ukraine, and how
1: related are the two? Okay, first of all, with regard to Taiwan, we shouldn't defer to China's rhetoric that Taiwan is part of China. Taiwan arguably has never been part of China, at least not since 1895. To put that in perspective, that's like saying Cuba is still part of Spain or the United States. I mean, we're talking that far gone. But who controlled Taiwan when the so-called Chinese did? It was the Qing Dynasty, Q-I-N-G, which the Chinese would be the first to tell you aren't actually real Chinese. They're more Manchu or Mongolian. So the fact of the matter is, if you go back 400, 500 years, the Chinese have controlled Taiwan for maybe 15 or so. And the reason why this is important is anyone who steps foot in Taiwan it's a completely different culture. To some degree, it's become a different ethnicity, a, a different type of Chinese language and so forth, and a lot of aboriginal language. So we're talking about one of the world's largest democracies, one of the world's largest economies, and simply subordinating them to the Chinese the way that Hong Kong has been or elsewhere. Hong Kong was part of China. Taiwan wasn't. We shouldn't, we shouldn't defer uh, and in this case, deferring to China's land grabbing uh, only in its appeasement, only encourages more land grabbing elsewhere, whether it's Mongolia, whether it's in Ladakh, India, which I already talked about, and so forth. With regard to Ukraine, um, aside from my family more than 100 years ago, being from Uman, which is in northern Ukraine, um, although, uh, of course, we were Russian Jews, we didn't consider ourselves Ukrainian, or for that matter, Russian, um, the The fact of the matter is, to borrow what my colleague and Jonah's colleague Fred Kagan just said, it's not an issue of doing nothing and getting nothing in return. Basically, if Russia is allowed to win or if Ukraine is allowed to lose, this fight's only going to get kicked down the road. So what you're actually doing is if you allow Ukraine to recover its territory now, then what you're talking about is the possibility of a peace. In with instead of a cold war, which is going to continue, a a cold conflict, which is going to continue for decades to come. So would you? I mean, I'll gladly pay you now for uh, um, what, what's the old Popeye thing? A hamburger today. Yeah, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the fact of the matter is it would be a lot easier to pay a little bit more upfront to have a longer term peace than it would be to have a continuation of a cult conflict, which is only going to drain billions and billions of dollars each year uh, for decades to come.
0: Yeah. I, I find that in the Ukraine thing is, and look, I got all sorts of criticisms of, of, of the Biden administration, but not really on Ukraine. I mean, I have there are places where I think we could have done more faster sooner and all these kinds of things. But given where my expectations were post Afghanistan, he's doing better than I would have expected him to do. He's certainly doing better than, than Obama did post Crimea. But all that said, I think that one of the reasons why we have this, the the sort of stupid version of the debate about Ukraine on the far right and the far left is, is precisely because Ukraine's been doing it the right way from the beginning is it, if we had had if we had sent any troops in people would be saying let the ukrainians fight for themselves we'll just send them weapons but because ukraine started from that position um people want to find a reason to complain about it and um it seems to me that there is this is this is essentially a no-brainer and um sort of circling back on this point that we've been uh, keep coming to The people who predicted that this was going to be a quick war, who weren't in the Kremlin, um, were also the very types of people, particularly some of my friends on the sort of you know restraint neo isolationist right, um, who just took it as a given that Putin was incredibly powerful, that Russia was incredibly powerful. They um, that that sort of power worship of incumbents um, really manifested itself, and they just couldn't imagine that Ukraine might want to. fight to defend itself more than Russians might want to fight to take it. And it seems to me that this should be a time for not, not chest thumping or overconfidence or whatever, but for the people like you and me who make the argument so far, um, when people say, you know, you know, democracy in Russia is dead or, or whatever, um, the fact that Russia has turned out to be a paper tiger should be incredibly encouraging to people who um, claim that they wish the status quo were otherwise, but they're just being realistic about how everything, you know, how these countries aren't going anywhere. Because um, if you had predicted that Russia would clown itself this way in January of
1: 2022, you know, people would have thought you were crazy. I think you're absolutely right there. Um, And I do want to give a shout out that the Biden administration did well. I mean, perhaps it's that old Winston Churchill thing that the Americans always do the right thing. They just try everything else first. But regardless, we got there. I mean, the days where we were encouraging Zelensky to take a flight out the way um, Ashraf Ghani did in Afghanistan, they're long past. Um, And you're you're absolutely right. We shouldn't believe all of our enemies' propaganda. It also raises questions about our intelligence and what you were saying before about whether feeding into that poor intelligence is the fact that we're only talking to people in their governments who are repeating their intelligence, uh, and so we're we're having bad intelligence amplify other bad intelligence and so forth. You're absolutely right there, um, and it's something which we really need to think deeply about. But you know, when forces of freedom are winning, good when. Ukraine before was divided between those that might be geared more towards Russia and those that might be geared more towards the West. Well, the fact is that Russia, what Vladimir Putin did better than any Ukrainian could, was convince the Ukrainians who were sitting on the fence or pro-Kremlin that it was a mistake to be pro-Kremlin. I do think what we need to look forward to and, and plan for is this fact that the model of Putinism has failed. Again, um, I can't say too much, but Suffice to say, I know people inside Russia. Um, The fact is that even Russians know that the Putin model has failed. And if that Putin model has, if Putin was able to come to power because the Boris Yeltsin model, and I'm not talking about sobriety, I'm talking about democracy, (laughs) was seen to have failed. And that paved the road for Putin. What are we doing to pave the road for a return to democracy, and what scares me most about Putin, especially should Putin go, is that Putin has, I mean, Boris Yeltsin was a disaster, but he had built up a system underneath him, which it's taken Putin two decades to dismantle. Putin has completely eviscerated the system underneath him, which is something that Saddam Hussein did, and look at the chaos which has afflicted Iraq since then. What are we going to do to encourage the Russians to build back up a system.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, the civil, the lack of a civil society thing, I think, is a hugely important point um, because that's really where the, it's sort of, you know, like um, trees, their roots are the things that keep the soil in place and protect against soil so erosion. Institutions of civil society are the things that sort of stabilize the, the larger social ecosystem. And if you get rid of all of them and then you get rid of the dictator, you get a mess. Um, but I I, I, I know we're coming up on time, but there's a question I just sort of want to ask you because it seems to me, particularly, you know, when you're talking about Iran, that you're a very, you're very realistic, but you're not a realist. Right. And, and what I mean by that, and I mean that as a compliment, um, I have always had a huge problem with foreign, self-declared foreign policy realists. I have no problem with people who are realistic, right. Who say, Hey, look, it would be great if we could topple the, the, Chinese regime with a minimal resources and whatever, but we can't. That's realism, and I, I got no problem with seeing reality for what it is. But I, uh, it seems to me that ninety percent of the time in Washington foreign policy debates, the people who call themselves realists tend to simply be the people who lost a foreign policy debate, and they 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 say, "Oh, the ideologues won. They're doing stuff based upon." ideological notions and, and, abstract, you know, ideas where I'm a realist who just looks at, at the facts and, um, or you get these people who essentially anthropomorphize countries and say that the country itself has these innate interests. And I think countries do have innate interests, but there's a sort of a there's a question begging problem where you get wherever the country does anything bad, they say well they're just acting on their interests as if they had no agency or choice to do something else. Putin didn't have to invade Ukraine; he chose to invade Ukraine, and there are a whole bunch of realists who talk about Russia as if it's like the weather, right? It's like this is just what you know. You're an idiot for arguing with a hurricane, right? And. um um, or it 's your fault for prodding the bear to make it angry, and so all the blame for the, all the murder that Putin is doing is your fault for inviting it. that kind of thing and and, and so look, I'm just kind of curious. is there a credible, you think serious intellectually coherent, serious school of foreign policy realism that I am just in my with my ideological blinkers missing um, because I'm always open to it in theory,
1: and then when I I read it in practice, I'm always underwhelmed by it. I mean, what I would say, and this is something I say when I teach, uh, and I certainly have come to believe both when I was much more uh, a traditional neocon and as have evolved out of it, is, look, there is no magic formula. And to me, the question is the degree to which ideologues on both sides, understand that there is no magic formula, that it's arrogant to believe there is, that if there was a magic formula, it would have been discovered by now. I guess it was back in the 50s when social science was really um, coming into its own. The Central Intelligence Agency created its um, analytical wing and so forth. But as you know, social scientists have never successfully predicted a revolution. They're not science. They're much more social. Um, and therefore, we just have to, I mean, we have to approach foreign policy with a degree of humility. Now, as you know, Jonah, my first degree was actually in environmental bio. And when I would be working for the Navy, one of the top officers at the admiral's table would always be the meteorological officer because when you're when you have an aircraft carrier you don't want to go into a hurricane with 80 foot waves and so forth and i got to talking to one about climate change and don't worry this isn't that much of a tangent and basically i asked with my typical lack of diplomacy why is it that all the models are wrong that we can't that these models don't have predictive value And what this uh, meteorologist had said was, hey, look, when you're studying physics, you isolate a single variable, and that's how you advance physics. When you're doing meteorology or climate science, you're talking about dozens of variables which you can't isolate, and dozens more that you don't even know exist, which is why the science has never been able to keep up with the expectations of what a science should be. And I would argue the same thing, plus this, nature, uh, this issue of human nature, is what has led us to where we are in some of our ideological debates with regard to the social sciences. The other thing, and, and I can leave it here, is the thing that Washington most lacks is a Tip O'Neill and a Teddy Kennedy who are willing to do whatever they're going to do in front of the television cameras, but then are willing to talk to each other uh, and do something else behind the cameras and understanding that not everything has to be a political football, that the United States is at its best when we can come to a um, consensus with regard to what policy is so that our enemies, whether they're Ayatollah Khamenei, whether they're Vladimir Putin or whether they're President Xi, don't believe that they can peel the United States and take advantage of our own fault lines. Rather, we should be taking advantage of their fault lines.
0: All right. Michael Rubin, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Okay. So uh, Michael Rubin has uh, left the studio and uh, Adam just informed me, I did not know this, but he, uh, Michael had mentioned uh, Fred Kagan. He's Fred Kagan is actually the guest on this week's Dispatch podcast. So it's It's very heavy with AI foreign policy Um, goodness. I should also say, you know, Michael Rubin not only has written a bunch of books, but when he was talking about like how diplomats should um, live outside of capitals and really get to know the culture and the region and that kind of thing, uh, Michael's done a lot of that. Uh, He's lived in, he he spent time with the Taliban prior to 9-11. He lived in Turkey for a while. He lived outside the green zone in iraq i believe during the war uh, i think he lived in yemen so i mean he and I, he wasn't being a diplomat but he's he he really believes in getting to know the places i kept wanting to bring it up and i kept couldn't find the time to do it um but and i think i've read this on this before but one of my favorite government documents um of the last 50 years is this memo that this guy, Lynn Wells, wrote for Don Rumsfeld in April of 2001. So this is before 9-11 and they were, and Rumsfeld had asked for thoughts about the quadrennial defense review. Anyway, Rumsfeld considered this one of the greatest uh, uh, memos he'd ever read. And um, we'll put it in the show notes if you want, but um, it's, I guess I can do the whole thing. It just begins... If you'd been a security policymaker in the world's greatest power in 1900, you would have been a Brit looking warily at your age-old enemy, France. By 1910, you would be allied with France and your enemy would be Germany. By 1920, World War I would have been fought and won, and you'd be engaged in a naval arms race with your erstwhile allies, the U.S. and Japan. By 1930, naval arms limitation treaties were in effect. The Great Depression was underway, and the defense, and the defense planning standards said, quote, No war for 10 years. Nine years later, World War II had begun. By 1950, Britain no longer was the world's greatest power. The atomic age had dawned, and a police action was underway in Korea. Ten years later, the political focus was on, quote, a missile gap. The strategic paradigm was shifting from massive retaliation to flexible response, and few people had heard of Vietnam. By 1970, the peak of our involvement in Vietnam had come and gone, We were beginning detente with the Soviets and we were anointing the Shah as our protege in the Gulf region. By 1980, the Soviets were in Afghanistan. Iran was in the throes of revolution. There was talk of our, quote unquote, hollow forces and a, quote, window of vulnerability, unquote. And the U.S. was the greatest creditor nation the world had ever seen. By 1990, the Soviet Union was within a year of dissolution. American forces in the desert were on the verge of showing they were anything but hollow. The U.S. had become the greatest debtor nation in the world had ever known, and almost no one had heard of the Internet. Ten years later, Warsaw was the capital of a NATO nation. Asymmetric threats transcended geography, and the parallel revolutions of information, biotechnology, robotics, nanotechnology, and high-density energy sources foreshadowed changes almost beyond forecasting. All of which is to say that I'm not sure what 2010 will look like, but I'm sure that it will be very little like we expect, so we should plan accordingly. That's the whole memo. And it just kept coming kept coming into my head. This is sort of the point I was trying to make, or maybe I succeeded in making, about how you should have the courage of your convictions to be consistent about your principles even if you have to make pragmatic concessions about how you apply them. And um, we, you know, for America, America takes the side of of freedom. America takes the side of democracy. America takes the side against authoritarianism, dictatorship, genocide, cruelty, um, all of these kinds of things. And sometimes America has to make painful compromises in its application of policy, but it should never make painful compromises in the, and ab- in, in its, in its ideals. So I am all in favor of being a, um, a, a realist or a pragmatist about means, um, but never about ends. Um, ends is for idealism. Means is for dealing with the messy facts of the real world. And, Um, You know, we didn't get deep into it, but like even rhetorical support helps people fighting for freedom everywhere. Uh, Natan Sharansky writes about this when he was a Soviet prisoner. Just simply knowing that you're not alone, that you're not forgotten, naming political prisoners so the world uh, doesn't let um, evil regimes erase them. All of those things matter. Um, all of those things have real effect, and all of those things allow Americans to look at themselves in the mirror, metaphorically, spearing, ex- metaphorically speaking, with some with some integrity. Um, and uh, this is not a critique specifically of the Biden administration, though there has been some of this in the Biden administration. This is a critique of what Michael was getting at about the State Department, foreign policy elites generally who um, can get captured by the interests of their profession and by the, 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 the people in other regimes that they have connections to. Um, and they can get captured by their own failure to imagine a world different than the one that benefits them professionally um, or otherwise. So anyway, I just think this stuff really matters. Meanwhile, um, if you're looking for something completely different, the next episode of The Remnant is going to be all about dogs. We have uh, one of the foremost experts on dog cognition coming on, and I'm very excited about that. And if you're not interested in dogs, don't listen. But I'm very excited about it. So um, with that, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for all the support while I was sick and all the other things. And um, I'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.